We're going to be reading from verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Let's pray. Lord, what a great delight and joy it is to come together each Lord's Day and to worship you as a body of Christ. Lord, we know that you rule and you reign in heaven. And also, Lord, as we've just read from your word, we know that this world is influenced by dark and evil powers. Father, as we sit at your feet now and as we listen to your spirit speak to us through your word, we pray that you would give us the obedience of faith. Father, we pray that you would meet each one of us where we are at and our need this morning. And we pray that, as we just read in your word, you would give me words to say that I might declare the gospel fearlessly as I should. So, Lord, we ask all of this confidently, for we pray it in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen. Ever since uh, I came to Hobart, about two years ago now, I've been struck by the observation that there is a unique spiritual darkness here. And I'm not the only one who thinks or perceives that to be the case. Many Christians I've spoken to, in fact, every Christian I speak to, and I mention this observation that I have, agrees with me. I'm nervous in expressing this thought uh, to you because I don't want you to think that I'm some kind of kook or something like that. But I think my observation has a grounding in Scripture, and in particular, can I say, passages like Daniel chapter 10, which we read from earlier. There we read about this glorious angelic figure who looks an awful lot 
like the pre-incarnate version of the Lord Jesus and he's doing battle against the prince of Persia. A particular spiritual malevolent entity that was associated with that particular region. And not only that, but at the end of the chapter in verse 20, we're told, soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. When I think, which I think is a reference to another demonic spirit, which will be in authority when the kingdom of Greece rises to power. Significantly, this angelic being says, no one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. And nearly all commentators agree that this is another angelic being who has specific responsibility for the people of Israel. We don't really talk much about the existence of angels uh, or demons as evangelicals, do we? Maybe that's because the scripture warns us against making too much of angelic beings. For instance, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and in the worship of angels disqualify you from the prize. And then he says, Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. Sometimes this talk around demonic entities, around specific geographical locations, leads to this kind of error, where people end up talking more to the devil or to angels than they do in talking to the Lord Jesus Christ. But just like if you had a problem at the shops, you wouldn't want to necessarily talk to the sales assistant, you'd really want to talk to the manager or even the owner of the store, that's the same opportunity and privilege we have as Christians, isn't it? We don't necessarily need to talk to angels, let alone demons. We can talk to the one who rules over all. The one who is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. The Apostle Paul says that such a person that goes into great detail about all the mysterious things they've seen, he he utters this warning. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Sometimes I think Satan's greatest temptation is to give us an over-fascination with these things, such that we're more fearful of demons and, and even more enamoured with angels than we are of the Lord Jesus. In other words, there is a danger that the person who focuses focuses too much on angels, ends up losing connection with the head, with the glory and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, who should, as we've already sung this morning, be preeminent in everything we do. He should thrill our hearts. Obviously, no Christian wants to make this mistake, but there is a danger in doing going too far the other way, isn't there? I mean, the Lord Jesus himself affirms uh, the existence of angels in passages like Matthew chapter 18, verse 10. He says, See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, that is, I think, these little ones who believe in him, no matter what age you are. He says, For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. 
It's encouraging to know, isn't it? So clearly angels are real and continue to perform an important practical function in the Lord's plans today. In fact, we're explicitly told in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, this is a good one to reflect on, can I say, this afternoon when you've got the time. It says this, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some people have entertained angels without knowing it. All of which to say is this, there is a spiritual realm of which we need to be mindful of. There is a real spiritual realm which cannot be seen but is there. And while there is a darkness, I think particularly in Hobart, which is different to other places I've lived and served in, we shouldn't fear because why? Jesus is the light of the world. And as he himself says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. While we don't want to see a devil under every bush, our battle is clearly not against flesh and blood. In fact, we know, don't we, our battle is against the world, the flesh and the devil. And as we just read in God's word, it is against rulers and authorities, principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. So we have to be, Paul says, both alert, watchful, and as we'll see in just a moment, prayerful as to how to respond to the devil's wicked schemes. Martin Luther, who often spoke about his own conflict with Satan, and in one particular encounter, he actually threw an ink pot at what he saw as a demon come into his study. He wrote in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Or I read a really good quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, I am certain that one of the main causes of the ill state of the church today is the fact that the devil is being forgotten. All is attributed to us. We have become psychological in our thinking and our attitude. We are ignorant of this great objective fact. The being, the existence of the devil, the adversary, the accuser and his fiery darts. Today then we're going to be looking at the subject of the devil. And this would have been, I think, a really important thing for the Ephesians uh, and the Christians that lived in Ephesus to hear. Because when the gospel first came to them, they were deeply mired in all things of the occult. They were famous for worshipping uh, and practising magic arts and evil spirits, things like that. And you can read all about this in, in Acts chapter 19. So many dramatic things happen in that chapter. It's surprising that Paul waited to the very end of his letter to write about the subject of spiritual warfare. I think if it was me, I would have started Ephesians with chapter 6. But again, he doesn't, and I think there's a good reason for that, and that is because we need to be grounded in the gospel. 
We should be confident of the victory that we have in Christ. And instead, Paul, in the sovereignty of God, waits until the very end because I think he puts Satan in his place. It shows that the devil truly is a defeated foe and that the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ truly is definitive. When the Ephesians turned to Christ, in Acts chapter 19, we're told that they burned all of their magic scrolls, which came to a total of 50,000 drachma. Or if you put it like this in another way, to, in keeping with inflation, $5 million in today's term. 50,000 drachma, $5 million they burnt when they came to Christ. It's a timely reminder, friends, that our repentance will often, and I think should be, costly. It will mean getting rid of things, such as books, maybe music, which are, you know are displeasing or dishonouring to God. I've heard of Asian Christians in my previous church which literally threw their Buddhist statues into the sea. And they would have been worth thousands, some of them tens of thousands of dollars. But such was their zeal for honouring and worshipping the Lord because it was an idol. And idols are an affront to the glory of Christ. And we should get rid of them. It's a good question to ask, isn't it? What are the idols that you might have in your heart? Those things that you cherish and hold on to, but you know you really should get rid of. Is there anything? What I want to do this morning then is outline the seven spiritual weapons that, and we'll go through this quite quickly, we've all been given to fight in God's holy war. Because make no mistake, if you are genuine follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are going to need these things immediately. Just before I outline that though, I, I want to notice, I want you to notice that they're all actually grounded and connected to Jesus and his gospel. You see, we're not told to take ground. We're told to stand our ground. And that's because the victory has already been won at the cross. Through Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension, the strong man has been bound. Jesus says this in John chapter 12, verse 31, 32. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot this down because it's a really important passage. John 12, 31, 32. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. You see how Jesus, in his life, his death and his resurrection, it was all about a definitive defeat of the evil one. And that's happened through the cross. And it's why the Apostle Paul repeatedly says in verse 11, verse 13 and verse 14 that you, Christian, we are to stand our ground. It's because the war has already been won. 
That said, the spiritual battle on earth continues until the Lord Jesus returns. Now, the first piece of our spiritual armor that we're told to put on is the belt of truth. Stand firm then, Paul says, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. The belt's obviously important because it actually keeps everything else together. Uh, and for a Roman soldier, it kept his whole uniform together and so was absolutely vital, essential. And that's just like us, isn't it, as Christians? The truth about Jesus is absolutely essential. If you don't know the truth, you'll be exposed to every other lie. And the devil is the father of lies. If we don't know that Jesus alone is the way, the truth and the life, everything else falls apart. Jesus is not just one option in the space of many gods. He's the only way. All other knees will bend and bow before him. The belt of truth then refers to, I think, the knowledge of Christ, of, who, of both whom he is and what he has done. I heard a missionary say once that a wolf is not necessarily afraid of a praying sheep, but the presence of the shepherd. When it comes to our fight with the devil, we need to constantly affirm the truth that Jesus is infinitely more powerful than the evil one. After I'd come to an understanding of the gospel, my mum uh, sent me to a Roman Catholic monastery because she thought that I'd been brainwashed and she thought that I needed to be reprogrammed. Uh, while I was there praying in my room one night, I saw this black apparition come through the doorway. And I was so scared I could hardly speak. But I remembered that in Mark's gospel, the demons had to beg Jesus to be sent into the swine. So I said, Jesus is Lord. And immediately this thing fled. It was like someone had opened a window or... And it just took off like a scolded cat. Only the truth about Jesus, friends, can protect us against the devil's lies. And one of the devil's greatest lies is that he has more powerful than that he has more power than Jesus. He doesn't. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. And he's been doing it from the very beginning. And one of his most common schemes is, is to think us that he has more authority than he really does. The second piece of armour is the breastplate of righteousness. Now, as I said before, this is something I think we've been given in and through the gospel. For the righteousness of Christ has been imputed into us as soon as we believe. In exchange for our sin, God gives us the pure, undefiled, perfect righteousness of his one and only Son. We've been clothed in his clean linen garments. We read in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was, this was credited to him not after he was circumcised, but before. Same thing for us, isn't it? 
when are we credited as righteous? It's not after we're baptized, but before. (laughs) And so we need to know that Satan cannot accuse us anymore because we've been given the righteousness of Christ. That's our confidence. Once again, it's crucial that we understand that our spiritual armour has been given to us in and through the gospel. It's not something that you necessarily have to you know, work up and generate yourself. It's a gift from God. Breastplates protect our vital organs, and in particular the heart. Charles Spurgeon used to say, It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self and to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this, for he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. You see the difference? Satan wants to make you look in and to yourself, which is only you'll see sin. The Holy Spirit wants to make you look to Christ and his pure, undefiled, righteous robe that he's given you through faith. That's where our assurance lies. That's where our confidence lies. Now, can I say that doesn't mean we don't seek to grow in holiness and righteousness. That's obviously an important thing to do. And what Satan will want to try and do is to tempt us and to make us stumble. But our spiritual armour, which we've been provided to fight against the devil, has been first and foremostly given to us in Christ. That's why it's our spiritual armour. Following on from this, the third piece actually has to do with our gospel witness. Paul says, uh, with having our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now, what will this mean for us practically? It's that we have to be ready, friends, to share the good news with others. Being ready means that we are ready to share the truth about Jesus with anyone that God puts in our path, whether it's at school or at work, or I think we'll find this particularly over the holiday period, with family and friends. Because of this, you can be sure, the devil wants you to be silent. The devil wants you and I to sit still. The devil wants you to say and do nothing. And that's why the piece of armour involves our feet. Because it's that part of the body which takes us places, literally, so that we can share the gospel. You know, the times in my life where I think I've felt most attacked by the devil is when I've sought to engage in some kind of ministry opportunity where I I knew I would be sharing the gospel. Or, if you don't believe me, Try this this week. Try and regularly do family worship with all your family. (laughs) Just see how difficult things get. Whether it's teaching a scripture class, going on a carols, going to a carols event, serving on an overseas mission trip, or coming to church on each Sunday morning, isn't the greatest spiritual battle each week getting ready for church? With predictable regularity, the devil consistently tries to discourage us in all kinds of ways. Oh, it's not worth going. Oh, it's too cold. Oh, I've got a headache. Oh, I'm really tired. Oh, I've had a hard week. Oh, I've got all these other things to do. Oh, I've got that difficult relationship. Oh, 
There's a million and one arrows that the devil can throw at you to discourage us. Part of our spiritual armor, friends, is simply to go. The prophet Isaiah says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. But there's nothing uglier, friends, than when we fail to move. Because if we miss out on the opportunity of sharing in the beautiful work of God's salvation, then the devil wins. The next piece of armour is just as practically important, and it's the shield of faith. A shield extinguishes or puts out all the fiery darts of the evil one. It's a vivid image, isn't it? They're not just arrows, but they're flaming arrows. Ignited from the pit of hell. And whenever we're effective in serving the Lord, the devil's strategy is to do all that he can to discourage us. And what, like, I think what that often looks like practically is accusations. Like was said before, you can't really be forgiven. That will never be good enough. And that you should just stop going to church, give up. Do something else. We find actually a really good example of this in Zechariah chapter 3 where Satan stands next to Joshua the high priest and the scripture says he stands there ready to accuse him. That's another one of Satan's great titles. tells you something about his nature. He is the accuser of the brethren. Alternatively, what's the Holy Spirit? The comforter of the brethren. You see, the Holy Spirit will convict us of sin. That's one thing. But the devil will condemn you for it. Satan is going to try and do all that he can to try and discourage you and I spiritually. And one of his choice arrows is condemnation. If we want to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, what do we need to do then? We need to lift up the shield of faith. We need to trust in what Jesus has done. We have to make a conscious decision to believe the truth of the gospel against the lies of the devil. You see, once again, our knowledge of the gospel is absolutely paramount, isn't it? You cannot try to do battle with the devil in your own strength. We will never overcome that way. What the Lord has done in his mercy and grace, though, is he's given in us, Jesus, everything we need to be able to take our stand against the evil one. All of which leads to the fourth piece of spiritual armor, which is the helmet of salvation. Now, the helmet, obviously, is important. It protects your head. Our minds are really, really important, though, because, once again, it's what we have to do in terms of what we think about Christ and what he's done for us. And this is how Satan will try to get in. Satan will always try to make you doubt that. That is his number one strategy. To make you disbelieve the gospel. To make you look at your own heart. Or even better, your own works and lack thereof. So we have to make sure that our minds are certain and clear about what God has promised it's why I ask every new member here at Cornerstone, 
What promise of Scripture represents for you the gospel? Because if your mind is not grounded in Scripture, then you're quite frankly a sitting duck for Satan's attacks. You won't last long. All of which leads us to the sixth and final piece of armour, which is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's the only piece of spiritual armour, you might notice, that you could say is offensive rather than defensive. Everything else, us, everything else we've been given protects us from being hurt, but the Bible is the one thing that we've been given to fight back. When Jesus was being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, it's significant, isn't it, that he answered the devil each time by quoting scripture. He did that not to show necessarily how smart and clever he is. Obviously, he's infinitely that. But because the Bible has spiritual power. It is able to divide between joints and marrow, soul and spirit. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. That's what the Word of God does. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive, not people, but every thought and make it obedient to Christ. That's where the spiritual battle rages. You could say it's in the conceptual, but it's deeper than that, isn't it? It's in the spiritual realm. You see, the weapons we fight with, they're spiritual, they're powerful, but they can't be seen. If you turn over to 2 Kings chapter 6 for a minute uh, with me, I'll show you what I mean. I love this passage because it illustrates so perfectly how there is an unseen world where a spiritual battle is occurring even when we don't perceive it. 2 Kings chapter 6, and I'm going to read from verses 13 to 17. Go find out where he is, uh, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back, he is in Dotham. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, Oh, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Even in chapter 10, did you notice Daniel had the vision. Daniel saw this incredible angelic being. The men with him didn't. They fled in terror. Same thing happens to the Apostle, Apostle Paul. When he meets the Lord on the road to Damascus, he sees a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those around him doesn't. 
Even though the situation here looked hopeless from a human perspective, it was not the same spiritually, was it? And this is why we should be confident of the seventh piece of armour, which is prayer. Paul says we should pray in the Spirit on all occasions and with all kinds of prayers and requests because our battle is in the unseen spiritual realm. The reference in the Spirit, again, I think, gives it what theologians call a Christological focus. Because it's Jesus who facilitates the Holy Spirit from being poured out from heaven. He says in John 16, it is, good, it is for your good that I'm going away. This is Jesus. Unless I go, the counsellor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Do you ever feel ill-equipped to pray? Humanly speaking, you and I are. But Jesus has poured out his spirit from heaven so we can pray. That's what we've been given. You see, it's not our words which make prayer effective, but the work of Christ. Every, about every month I make us all very uncomfortable and I stop the service and I get us to do something incredibly radical, which is really shouldn't be radical for any Christian, and that is we pray. Do you ever feel like, ah, oh, you know, my prayers aren't that effective? Well, in one sense, they're not. But in another sense, they're incredibly effective because of Christ. So when we give vocalization to our prayers, we're giving glory to Christ. In our weakness, we're relying on him for strength. You see? Again, don't let Satan deceive you into being silent. His strategy is to always stop you praying. The devil hates prayer. And especially when it comes from humbling, stumbling lips like ours. Because the weaker we are, the stronger Christ is. All the way throughout this sermon, I've been talking about the devil's schemes. And as you can see, there are many. One of these most common, though, is to, I think, make people disappointed with church. To show and remind you of all the inadequate things which take place. And to be sure, they are inadequate. And they do fall short of what God intends. What you have to do, though, is turn your disappointment, whenever it comes, and it, and it will come, into an even greater impetus to pray. You see, instead of criticise or get disillusioned, recommit yourself in that moment as an opportunity for intercession. As you see that need, that inadequacy, pray. Did you notice what Paul wrote in verses 19 to 20? He asks for prayer specifically for himself. Now, why is that so important? Because if the gospel is failing, or if church is nowhere near where you think it should be, then it's probably got to do with a lack of prayer. My brothers and sisters in Christ, I cannot emphasize this enough. We need to be devoted to prayer. 
and especially for those who have been called to public proclamation. In many ways, we all have a part to play in this. But we need to be interceding for our missionaries, for our pastor teachers, evangelists, Sunday school teachers, that words would be given to them that they will fearlessly make known the mystery of Christ. Because we work together for the gospel, don't we? And it's the prayers of his children which the Lord has chosen to pour out the abundance of his blessings from heaven. So rather than be disappointed, see it as an opportunity which the Lord has revealed to you to be part of the solution. Pray more than you criticize. Not only is our battle not against flesh and blood, friends, but it's possible that, like Peter did when he tried to discourage Jesus from going to the cross, we too can sometimes get in the way of God's purposes. So let's seek to be used by him, especially when it comes to the work of holy intercession. Well, on that note, why don't we spend some time in prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for speaking to us through your word this morning. We thank you that you are the Lord and King over all the universe. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that as we go out this week, that we would, and as we do battle with the world, the flesh and the devil, you will, by your Holy Spirit, remind us of the truths that we've learnt this morning. Lord, help us all to be grounded in the gospel, that we're loved by you with an everlasting love, that we're held in your hand, and that no one can snatch us out of it. Father, remind us again of the great act of atonement which you did on the cross so that we could be forgiven. Fill us all with your Holy Spirit, Lord, and encourage us that we would know your joy, your peace, and your power. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.